Well, good morning, everyone. I'm so glad to see you in worship on this Lord's Day. And I want to say thank you uh, for worshiping the Lord through song. And now let's worship through the word, shall we? If you haven't done so already, I want to invite you to take your listening outline from your worship guide. Get a pen in hand and open your Bibles in the New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew. You know the Bible has an Old Testament and a New Testament, and the New Testament begins with four stories of the life of Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in our chapter a day readings right now, we're reading through the Gospel of Matthew. Of course, if you're not in that journey yet, I hope you'll pull out your phone, text the word chapter to 22828. You'll be able to sign up and join with hundreds of us as we're reading along that way. And today I want us to look at Matthew. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 15. And do you see the title of the message that's there on your outline? It's called, Should We Wash Our Hands? What Jesus Said About God's Commands and Our Traditions. Now, as we're preparing to hear the word here in the worship center, I want to offer a warm welcome to everybody in our contemporary service today. I'm really glad you're here this morning. And I want to offer a welcome, too, to those who are joining on TV and online, we're glad you're part of this service this morning as well. Now, uh, I think it's appropriate in a message that has a title, Should We Wash Our Hands, that we do a little poll here this morning with a show of hands, okay? And so here's what I want to ask. I'm going to ask you a series of questions. Just respond immediately if you would. They all have to do with hands and washing your hands. There are four or five questions. Just quick show of hands all around the room. Are you ready? Here we go. How many of you are generally in favor of people washing their hands? Can I see your hand? That's true. Okay. Most everybody. How many of you are washing your hands more now, post-pandemic, than you were pre-pandemic? Can I see you that your hand, if that's true of you? Okay. Pretty good smattering around the room. How many of you typically wash your hands before you eat? Can I see your hand? If you wash your hands before you eat, shame on the rest of you. That's all I got to say. And how many of you wash your hands after you go to the bathroom? Can I see your hand? And for the rest of you, that's just really gross. That's all I want to say. And here's one more question. How many of you, when you wash your hands, use soap? Can I see your hand? All right. And uh, how many of you just lied to me? Can I just, no. There you go. Actually, some of you did. Uh, because this is what the research shows. The research shows about hand washing, and yes, there's really research out there that people lie about their hand washing. They put little counters on the soap dispenser in public restrooms, then they station somebody outside, and they ask people when they come out, hey, did you wash your hands, and did you use soap? And guess what people always say almost? Yes, they say, of course I did. But guess what? That little counter on the soap dispenser, not nearly as high as all those people. Well, one more question about hand washing. You'll see why it's important here in a moment, I think. Um, if we break it down by gender, who do you think uh, washes their hands most, men or women? What do you think? Women. Absolutely. <laughs> the research shows two to one. Two to one. 
Women wash their hands more than men. Now, there's one other thing the research shows. I just want to put it out there before we dive into the scripture today. And that is that there really is a correlation between hand washing and disease spread. The research shows that the optimal number of times to wash your hands every day is between six and 10 times. If you wash fewer than that, zero to five, you're probably not washing enough. And if you're washing more than 10 times, it just may mean you're a little obsessive compulsive because <laughs> it, it really does not help uh, to wash more than 10 times. Now, some of you are saying, Pastor Tim, it's all very interesting, but uh, what has it got to do with anything at church? Well, I think when you look at Matthew 15, 1 through 20, you will see that washing hands frames the entirety of this discussion. But before we're done, you're going to see that it's not our hands that are most important. Let's look at it. Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. It says, then Pharisees and scribes, those are religious leaders, came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? And then what tradition was it that Jesus' disciples were breaking? The Pharisees and scribes says, for they do not wash their hands before they eat. Now, I don't want you to miss what's going on here. It's about 80, 85 miles or so from Jerusalem up to Galilee where Jesus was teaching. So these religious leaders had on foot walked 80, 85 miles, probably a four or five day journey. And what was the purpose of the week long journey? To say, why do your disciples, and by implication you, Jesus, not wash your hands when you eat. Now, I just want to say there's a principle right on top of that before we actually get into the meat of it, and it's this. Write it in. Number one on your outline, it's not unusual for people to be upset when someone tampers with their traditions. Haven't you found that to be the case? that it was true back then, the Pharisees and the scribes were upset. Why? Because Jesus and his disciples were tampering with their tradition. But it's true today too, that when somebody tampers with somebody else's tradition, that somebody else oftentimes sort of gets their back up. They respond negatively. They don't respond positively. They in fact wanna say, wait a minute, what are you doing here? Maybe that would even describe you. Has somebody tampered with one of your traditions? And have you sort of gotten your back up about it? That's what the Pharisees and the scribes were doing. So what is a tradition? The word tradition in the Greek New Testament has to do with hands. It is something that is handed down, something that is passed along, something that is delivered from one person to another or from one generation to another. And so a tradition, that's something that is handed down, provides order, stability, a pattern, a habit, a practice. And it really doesn't matter whether you're talking about in the context of your home 
or in the context of a school on this Educator Recognition Day or in the context of a community or a church. Everybody has things that have been handed down that they've embraced. And the truth is, we sort of get comfortable there. And when somebody tampers with the tradition, um, it might sort of upset us. It did the scribes and the Pharisees. What are we really talking about when a tradition is being tampered with? Well, we're talking about a change. Now, the truth is all growth requires change and all change involves loss and all loss involves some grief. And so all growth and change is hard. It's difficult at some level because of that process. So how do you respond, especially when change comes that you didn't initiate? You know, I love what I think it was Mark Twain who said, the only person who really likes change is a baby with a wet diaper. And I think he was right about that. You know, if somebody comes in, sort of upsets your apple cart a little bit, says, no, we're not gonna do it that way anymore. We've got a new process. We've got a, we've got a new uh, computer system that we're implementing. You need to learn it. The old way, we're not going to do it anymore. We're going to do it this way. Well, they're tampering with your tradition. Or the curriculum you've been teaching, we're going, to, we're going to modify that. We're going to change that. We're going to do that. Or the discipline procedures, well, we're going to change that. Or the, the school uniform, we're going to change that. You, you just go down the line, and the longer it's been handed down, sort of the greater sense of disequilibrium there is when somebody tampers with your tradition. Now we're gonna see some implications of that that are transferable, but I also don't want you to miss the deeper spiritual meaning. So let's dig a little deeper. So look at verse three. It says, Jesus answered their question with another question. He said, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Now, the important thing I just want you to see at this point in the passage is that Jesus is establishing two categories, and we need to be able to identify those two categories today. So, write it in. Number two, it's important for us to distinguish between God's commands, God's commands, that's one of the categories, the commandment of God that he identifies in verse three, and our traditions. And our traditions and God's commands are different. They're not always the same. So let's dig a little deeper. Look at verse 4. For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. It's in the Ten Commandments, is it not? Honor your father and your mother. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. And then Jesus says to the religious leaders who had put this tradition called Corbin in place, he said, so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. And then Jesus, boy, he just lays it out there. He says, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching us doctrine the commandments of men. Now it's probably wise for us to take just a second here to describe what's going on behind this. A little bit intricate, but I think we can all get there and be on the same page. 
So how were these people negating the command to honor their parents by implementing the Pharisees' tradition? Well, it went like this. The clear command of God was to honor your father and your mother. And that meant in their older age, when their health declined, they could not provide for themselves. You were to do everything you could to provide for them. A place of shelter, materially, financially, the basics of life. But let's say I don't have a great relationship with my mother and daddy. Say I want to dishonor them. I don't respect them and I don't want to obey God's command. But I have resources. I could provide them support, but I don't want to. Well, the Pharisees essentially gave someone like that a religious dodge. And the dodge went like this. I would take my portfolio or my money or my property, and I would say, this is all committed to God. And I would make a public pronouncement of that. All my property, all my resources are committed to God. It means that when I die, all of those resources will go to the temple, to its treasury, to the worship that goes on there. And what the Pharisees were teaching is once you made that kind of commitment of your resources to God, you could legitimately then say to a needy parent, oh, I'm sorry, mom, I'm sorry, dad. I, I really don't have the means to take care of you. Well, why? Because I've committed it all to God. And Jesus looked that religious dodge right in the face. And he said, you guys are making null and void the clear command of God because of this religious tradition that you've put in place. Well, what are the truths that emerge from that for us? I think here they are. Number three, write it in. For us, it means we must not only be careful to distinguish between God's command and our tradition, we must always give more weight, more weight to the clear commands of God's word than we do to our traditions. And when we give equal or more weight to our traditions than the clear commands of God, we become legalists that nullify the word, just like in Jesus' day. And then number four, write it in on your outline. The impl clear implication here, back then and now, is we may modify our traditions. Why? Because they're our traditions. They may be uh, an expression of a principle or an inference or an application of a biblical principle, but they're not the principle itself. So we may modify our traditions, but we're not at liberty to change God's word. We're not at liberty to change the command. Now, let's bring it up to now and see if we can illustrate it. Sunday by Sunday, almost every Sunday, somebody's baptized in one of our blended services right over here in this pool, right? And typically what happens is a pastor, and they walk out in a white robe, and they are immersed under the water. And we say words like it's a symbol of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's also a picture of the washing away of sin. So now, let's, let's establish two categories. Just for the sake of our conversation, let's say the command of God we're going to called truth, but then our inferences and applications of that command we'll call tradition. Truth or tradition? Y'all ready? Let's play the game. So, is baptism 
truth, the command of God, or is baptism tradition? Which one is it? What would you say? Most of this crowd says truth. And if I had a uh, uh, sound that means correct, I would do that right now. That's correct. Why? Because what did Jesus say? He said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Here's the command, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So baptizing people is truth. We don't have the liberty of saying, hey, we're going to be a church that follows Jesus, but that baptism thing is just an old tradition. We're not going to do that anymore. Oh, no. He commanded that. All right, but now here's my second question. The wearing of the white robes in the baptistry, is that truth or is that tradition? Are you sure? You're right. It's tradition. It's tradition. Somebody says, no, it's in Second Babylonian somewhere, you know. Now, is it a good tradition? Well, obviously, we think so, and we do it. Why? It's a beautiful picture. It's a picture. Of, it symbolizes the purity of our lives once they've been washed clean by the blood of Christ. And so we're new in him, and we wear a white robe. But is it, is it necessary? Can you change that? Well, of course you can. So when we have the picnic, uh, the baptism at the picnic out there, it's a much more casual outdoor situation. Do people wear white robes into Lake Ingleside when they get baptized? No, they just wear the gym shorts and the t-shirt and the pastors are in the gym shorts and the t-shirt. But is it still a legitimate baptism? Well, yeah, it is. Now, I could illustrate that over and over again but the point is really important. In all of our church life, but the truth is, in business, in schools, in every situation, you need to distinguish between core values and commands that don't change and their expression, the traditions which can be and should be modified. Well, it even goes deeper than that. Look at verse 10. And Jesus called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. In other words, he's saying, it's not whether your hands that touch the food are unclean that defiles you. But what comes out of the mouth, this is what defiles a person. That word defile means this is what makes you not right with God. Now, when Jesus said that, the disciples came and said to him, do you know, Lord, do you know that the Pharisees were offended? They were shocked and they were angry when they heard this saying, when the Pharisees heard Jesus say, look, it's not what you put into your mouth that makes you not right with God. He was essentially saying, don't worry about your hands being ceremonially clean. Don't worry about clean and unclean foods. And boy, the Pharisees got the message. And they were shocked. They were 
offended when they heard this say. So look what Jesus said. Look at verse 13. It says, and Jesus answered them and said, I'm so sorry I offended the Pharisees. Is that what your Bible says? Now, I don't want you to misunderstand. The Bible gives us no liberty to be judgmental or censorious or obnoxious or belligerent or hard to get along with. Bible gives Christian people no liberty to do that. If you follow Christ, we need to be filled with the spirit of love and joy and patience peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness and faithfulness. Those things ought to just ooze out of us. But the truth is, write it in on your outline, some will be offended by our fidelity to the truth of God's word. And when they are, We just have to stand with Jesus and we say, well, what Jesus said is every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. He's saying, look, these guys may not really belong to the Lord because people who belong to the Lord would see this truth. So let them alone, they're blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Church family, there ought to be nothing about our disposition, demeanor, or approach to people that causes unnecessary offense. But when the gospel and the truth of God is offensive, we've got to stick by the truth of God. Well, look what happens next. Verse 15, Peter said to him, Lord, explain this parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? He said, Peter, don't you see that what goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And it's what's in the heart that comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. And then he comes back to the presenting cause He says, but to eat with unwashed hands, that doesn't defile anyone. So let's apply this now at the end. Here it is, number six. God is more concerned about the internal transformation of my heart. And by heart, the scripture is not talking about that four chamber muscle that pumps blood. It's talking about the inner me. God is more concerned about the transformation of me from the inside out than he is about my external punctilious practice of religious rituals, which may be little more than human tradition. And you know what? Sometimes it is when we focus on the tradition and not the heart, it's a dodge. It's the same kind of dodge. So what's the process of lasting spiritual change? It goes like this, write it in. It begins in my heart, then it affects my lips, what I say. It moves from my heart to my lips, 
and then to my life. And that's the way lasting spiritual change occurs. Now, we ought to be careful before we're done today that we pay attention to the kinds of things Jesus said ought to be removed from our hearts and lives if we follow Christ. Did you see the list? I put them on your outline again. Many of them appeared in the Sermon on the Mount. Did you get to read it aloud this last week? If you didn't get to read it aloud, as I challenged you last week, I hope you'll do it this week. Many did and were greatly blessed by it. Look, he says, here are the things that will make you not right with God, that will separate you, that are sinful, that are immoral. And then he lists them. It's not comprehensive, it's illustrative. He says, evil thoughts, murder and anger, adultery and lust, sexual immorality, any sexual involvement other than that between one man, one woman in, ma in marriage is sexual immorality, theft, false witness, not telling the truth under oath, slander, speaking in a blasphemous way to defame the character of another. He said, if you guys really wanna focus on the things that matter, Focus on the things of the heart that affect your lips and your life, not the religious minutia. So I wanna ask you what kind of person you are at the end. I think this passage suggests three types of people. Look on your outline. There is the person who just rejects God in its entirety. They say, God doesn't exist. I don't recognize his authority. I don't recognize his commands. And so I, I reject even the categories, Pastor Tim. I, I reject the fact that God has given commands that he intends for us to obey. I don't believe that he exists. I don't believe his authority. I don't think his commands apply to me. Do you know what the Bible calls that person? The Bible calls that person a fool. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Don't be a fool. The second person is the person who presents as one thing while purposefully and deceitfully being another. In other words, they arrange their life so that when you look at them, you have a positive and favorable thought about them. They want you to think good things about them because of the virtue that they present to you in a public way. But if you could peel the onion, you could see that this is what they want you to think they are. But in truth, this is what they are. And they have no intention of being anything other than that. Jesus gives us the name of this person. It's in our passage today. Did you see it? What do you call a person who presents as one thing while they're intending to be another? Do you know what it is? It's a hypocrite. Don't be a hypocrite. But then there's a third person. This is a person who has an acknowledged sanctification gap. I'm going to define that in a moment. That they are asking God to help them eliminate as they follow Jesus. In other words, there is the person, and I suspect it's many of us who follow Christ in this room. We would say, I wholeheartedly agree that there is a God. He has a standard, and I don't meet it yet. I fall short of the standard. But when I do, 
Oh, it grieves my heart. And I ask God to forgive me. And I ask him to help me by the power of his spirit, by his grace, to live by his standard. Do you see? There's a gap in my sanctification, but it's not the same as the fool or the hypocrite. And somebody may look at my life and go, oh, that guy's a hypocrite. No, no, they're wrong. Because I acknowledge the standard is right. It's what God expects. And I don't always meet it. But all my heart's desire is for the gap to be shrunk. And you know what you call that person? You call that person a maturing disciple of Jesus. Be that kind of disciple. So what are we taking away today? I think I probably need to say something about hand washing here at the end. Otherwise, every older child and middle schooler at Ingleside may say to their parents, Pastor Tim said, washing your hands, it doesn't matter. And from a hygiene perspective, it does. Wash your hands. But it doesn't matter as much as your heart, your life. And I'm just willing today, I'm just asking today, are you willing to let God change you from the inside out? And if at church or at work or at home or at school or wherever you live, if you've sort of adopted this deal of focusing on the externals instead of the internals, if, if you've identified and conflated tradition with truth in a way that doesn't allow change to happen, then maybe God brought you here today to start you on a new path of transformation and growth and development from the inside out. Well, that's my desire for me and that's my desire for you. Let's pray together. Father, thanks so much for teaching us today from your word. Help us apply these truths in the power of the Spirit. And Lord, would you change us from the inside out. Forgive us when we fall short of your standard. Forgive us when, like the Pharisees, we bow up about our traditions, even when they need to be tampered with. And Lord, would you help us be the kind of people that you can shape and mold and develop into more and more Christ-likeness. That's our heart's desire. We love you, and we offer this prayer to you in Jesus' name. Amen.